Hello? Hello? Can you ask, can you, can you hear me? Yeah. Brilliant, okay. I'm just going to plug myself on here. Okay, all good. So, welcome. Um, today we are continuing with our Unstoppable God series, which is cool. It's basically about looking through the miracle stories of Jesus. And today I'm going to be talking about a, a particular miracle story where Jesus comes against evil. And I appreciate, for many, for many of us, especially if you're fairly intellectual, a bit science-y, um, stories where Jesus comes against evil can be a bit challenging for us. And, and I don't want you to feel bad about that, um, but I do think we can be encouraged. So um, personally, what I've done last year, I read a brilliant book. This is my favorite book of last year, for 2016. And it's a book by a guy called Richard Beck, who's got a great name and great initials, RB. Um, and it's called Reviving Old Scratch. Um, Demons and the Devil for the Doubters and Disenchanted, which I thought was very helpful. Um, he's a very intellectual guy, he's a very scientific guy, but he, he just finds it, I find it a really helpful way, just thinking, going through these sort of texts, especially if you don't quite get your head around some of it. Okay, so if you have your Bible, if you turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, so I'm expecting to see lots of Bible apps on phones, Especially sort of lots of frantic swiping. I'm seeing lots of frantic swiping. I think someone's just overswiped at the back there. It's chapter four, not chapter sixteen. So swipe back. I'm going to do. I'm going to use a book. It's bizarre. I'm going to use, I'm going to use a book. No, it's like a museum piece. These days, it's got it's got pages and everything. Um, okay, so chapter four is a, is a very short story. So you have to stay awake, or you you, you will literally miss it. It's two verses. Okay, so it's chapter 4, verse 38. Say amen if you got it. Amen. Wow, people are brilliant. Okay, everyone's good. So those apps are so brilliant, aren't they? Okay, chapter 4, verse 38. After leaving the synagogue, he, that is Jesus, entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and he asked him about it. Then he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Immediately she got up and began to serve them. The end. Told you a short story. It's brilliant. I've got four points to make. I know what you're thinking. How on earth do you get four points when there's barely four words in that story? I've managed to do it. Okay, so there's four points I want to make. They're not particularly huge points, but I think they're very important points. The first point is that Jesus cares about family. This is a story about um, Peter's mother-in-law. And, 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 and it's important because she's not a very big character in the gospel. You know, she's, she's nameless. She doesn't play a, a particularly big role. Um, the only thing that's significant about her is that she's related to Peter. And therefore, she's someone that Peter cares about. And therefore, she's someone that Jesus cares about. And... and, and you know, I've, when, I, when I was preparing for this, I came across the fact that some scholars, when they, when they, when they go through this story, that what they say is, is that the reason Jesus performed this miracle, it might be something linked to the fact that by doing that, he was making a statement about marriage. Because it's, it's Peter's mother-in-law, there's a marriage connection. By performing the miracle, he's actually kind of underlined the importance of marriage. And which also implies that if there weren't that connection, he may have not bothered. 
And that kind of annoyed me because, it, you know, I think there's lots of scholars who, have a, who are just obsessed with making Jesus seem like a cyborg. You know, like he, everything he does is down to some sort of objective agenda or some sort of emotionally disconnected purpose. You know, God forbid that Jesus might actually care for someone. Um, but I don't buy that. I believe Jesus does care about family. I believe Jesus cares about my family. I believe he cares about your family. I believe he cares about your parents. I believe he cares about your children. I believe he cares about your aunts and uncles, your siblings. I believe Jesus cares about family. And I also believe Jesus cares about Peter's mother-in-law. And that's more than enough reason for God and Jesus to perform this miracle. Furthermore, when it comes to trials and struggles, I've come to realize that actually, often enough, the, the people who are at the center of those struggles are not ourselves. Quite often, it's our loved ones. Sometimes people who are not connected to the church. People who no one in the church even knows about. But they matter to us because they're, they're related to us. And all I'm saying is they matter to God too. That's point number one. Point number two is the word fever. Now, I didn't really appreciate this when I first was looking at this text. But in the classic, so ancient times, the sort of classical times, the word fever had a, a, a sort of much stronger connotations much stronger meanings than it does today. So today, when we say fever, we think of someone who probably has maybe like an air infection and they're a bit hot. And what you normally do is give them some paracetamol, strip them down to the vest, give them plenty of fluids, and Bob's your uncle. They should be fine in in a day or two. In, In the past, the word fever meant something much more sinister, something much more stronger. I'm trying to think of like a modern day equivalent and the only thing I can think of is the word AIDS. Now today, AIDS is not a death sentence. Now we all know that if someone did have AIDS, there's brilliant treatment out there and they can probably live a perfectly healthy life for decades. Back in the 80s, you know, if you said someone had AIDS, you know, you'd probably think their head's about to fall off or something. Um, I'm thinking, you know, it was, it was a death sentence. It just, it just meant something very, very different back then than it does, it does today. I remember actually back in the 80s, I was, I was a very young child and my sister must have just come across this word AIDS and she told me about it, so it was like a new thing for me. And so I, I, I didn't really know much about it, so I, I went back to school and I decided to try it out, you know, just, just try this word out, just to see what happens. And I, I remember calling some, some sweet little girl, it's been embarrassing, I called her an AIDS breeder. How, how bad is that? And um, they told my parents... And I think my parents, they, 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 weren't, they weren't so much they were angry with me, they were just stunned. They just looked completely stunned at me. Like, how could you say such a thing? Because of the connotation, especially back then, of what it meant. But of course today, it means something very different. And fever is a bit like that, not quite the same, granted. But the fact is, what it means today, or what it meant back then, is different. Back then, it was much more serious. It's like the plague or something, much more serious. It's like it was a death sentence. Um, furthermore, it, the word fever, especially amongst Jews, has another kind of meaning. That it meant that there was like a spiritual element to it. So it wasn't just an illness. It wasn't like catching a cold or something. There was, a, there was something spiritual about it, something demonic about it. Now, I'm not saying that every time a, f- a family member catches a cold, it's the devil. It, it might just be the cold. It's quite possible just the cold. There's lots of colds out there. 
But when I say this, I know that some of you in this room are thinking, actually, this resonates to me. There's stuff going on in my family's life where it's just not the code. There's something much more sinister. Can't quite put my finger on what it is, but I know there's something going on. And when I mention something that's something spiritual about it, it rings a bell. And that's what's going on in this lady's life. Okay, she's seriously ill. Um, It's not just a simple fever. And there's something spiritual, something demonic going on. Hard to know what it is, but we know it's there, we know it's real. And basically, she needs intervention. She needs external intervention. She needs God's intervention. If Jesus doesn't move in this situation, she's in a lot of trouble. That's, That's the situation at the moment. Then we get to point number three. Jesus beats Satan. It's a short story, isn't it? <laughs> One minute, head's about to fall off. The next minute, she's perfectly fine. Um, the question is, is, how does Jesus beat devil? Well, how does Jesus beat evil in our family's lives, in our lives? How does he do it? Well, in the story, Jesus rebukes the fever. He, um, he commands it to go. The Bible is not very explicit in what Jesus says. You know, maybe Jesus said, get out. Uh, maybe, you know, he, you know, maybe he did it like, like West Indians. You know, in the West Indies, they sometimes don't say, get out. So they often say things like, fly out. Or um, maybe he did it like Gandalf. I watched the Lord of the Rings the other week. And what he said, he doesn't say fly out. He says, fly, you fools. With authority. And that's the point. The point is not what he says. The point is that he says it with authority. Now, what does authority mean? Now, authority is not the words. Authority is not the tone in which you say the words. Authority is not the volume in which you say the words. Authority is found in a person who says it. Put your hands up if you, perhaps in your professional, you know, in your work context, you are a manager. You know, it's like, yeah, it's a few, few of us. I was a manager for, for, for over 10 years. I'm not, I'm not now, but I was then. And so I know, a little, I know a few things about being a manager. Um, and as a manager, you get, you get authority. And basically, if you want something done, there's probably a whole range of ways you can say it. But ultimately, because you have said it, it gets done. You know, how you say it is irrelevant. It's because of who you are, and because you have the authority, people have to respond, and they have to do it. And Jesus has the authority. That's what's going on here. When he comes against the enemy, Jesus has the authority. The bottom line is this, church. When it comes to Jesus versus the devil, this is not a straight fight. This is not a fair fight. This is never an even battlefield, okay? Satan versus Jesus is a bit like a mouse versus an ox. You know, it's very one-sided. There can ever only be one winner. And, uh, and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to just play down evil. I'm not trying to say that evil is no, is no big thing. Far from it. Um, you may have noticed, um, you know, sometimes say Satan, I often say the word the Satan. And I, and I say the Satan because many scholars say the word the Satan these days. And I say the Satan because what they're trying to say is it might not necessarily be like a person, like a geezer with a pitchfork. Satan may be something much more sinister like a persona, not persona, like a, a phenomenon, a very vivid, a very destructive, a very evil, a very serious phenomenon, which, and he might be a geezer of a pitchfork, it may be something much worse than that. 
But the point is, what they're trying to recognize is that Satan is, is definitely a real thing, and he might be actually worse than what we think. Nevertheless, even if Satan is worse than what we think, compared to Jesus, it's still a mouse versus an ox. Okay, so I'm not trying to underplay Satan. I'm just recognizing that compared to Jesus, it's still a mouse versus an ox. Jesus has the power. Jesus has the authority. What Jesus says goes. Just like when a man just says something, it goes. When Jesus says something, it goes. And that's, and that's it. Enough said. Later on, you know, I probably would like to pray for people, especially if the whole thing about family members resonates with you. But here's the deal. When things, you know, I believe in things for breakthrough. But it's not going to be done because of my praying. It's not that my special prayers are going to cause the breakthrough. I mean, let me share something with you. I'm not a great prayer. To be honest, my prayers generally suck. I can say it out loud because I think God knows. I think he figured it out. Years ago, he figured it out. But it's okay because it's not in my prayers. It's not, it's not in my words. It's not in my language. It's not in my ability to articulate um, great language to, to cause God to move. It's in Jesus who has the authority. That's what causes the breakthrough. And that brings me on to my fourth point. The fourth point is this. The story of Jesus healing um, Peter's mother-in-law is found in not in four gospel, in one gospel, it's found in three. It's found in Mark, um, Luke, and, 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 and in Matthew. Now, it's always, in, all the, in all the stories, it's very short, but the ending is very slightly different. So in Matthew, Jesus doesn't command the devil to go. What he does, he touches the lady's hand. And in Mark, Jesus does something different. He doesn't just touch her hand, but he lifts her up. And I like that. I like the fact that each of these three versions emphasizes three different things. Because it tells me that not only does Jesus care about our family members, but he commands those things over them to go. You know, he tells them to get out or to flout or, you know, fly you fools with authority. But he also touches our loved ones, touches, and he lifts them up. He lifts them out of that situation. And once fully healed, once fully restored, what's, what the great thing about the story is that she... It's very understated, actually. What she does, she goes on and serves them. She goes on to do something that's rather normal. And I've spoken to many people who who have family members who who are struggling. And what they say is, you know, their prayer is that for their family member is just to have a normal life. Just Just to do things that normal people do. They don't want a fanfare. They just want their family member to just to do the normal things that everyone else gets to do. And what I love about this story is, is that's exactly what happens. She is made completely whole. She is completely restored. And then she gets to do what normal people get to do. Amen.